0: Welcome to Optimist in Progress. I'm Tom Johnston, and with me is Drea Letamendi. Hi, Drea.
1: Hi, Tom. How are you?
0: I'm good, thanks. I'm really excited about the conversation that we have today with Jemiah Hargins. He's a social entrepreneur and gardening engineer. He's been described as a chronic social entrepreneur He's a community leader and the founder of Crop Swap LA, which is a nonprofit that aims to eradicate food inequity in Black and Brown communities in Southern California by encouraging people to grow food in their gardens and any open space, and then trade what they don't consume. Yeah, it's yeah. such an
1: awesome idea, and something that I think uh, can be done by just about any one of us. Um, now, certainly, um, from what I've read about Jemaya and I've watched some of his, his videos. Um, He's such an inspiring leader and activist and has a tremendous background in entrepreneurship. Um, But how he talks about micro gardening makes it really sound like any one of us could kind of pick up a small plot anywhere in our homes or in our backyards. And even this concept of sharing and collective uh, gardening is also uh, very accessible. I think it's something that many of us could try to do.
0: I love how he takes a really practical approach to gardening and makes it seem very simple, gardening or farming in an in a, a urban environment, but actually uses it as a way to talk on many different levels about many different social aspects and um, societal issues. He was named by LA City as a Good Food Champion in 2019, and he began with the Asante Micro Farm in the front yard of his own house. So it's super practical. He just started right there. Um, the success of this first initiative led to the creation of the West Adams Farmer's Market, which didn't exist. There was no farmer's market in West Adams before. But he, uh, because he started growing all this produce and, and, and bringing the community together around food that was grown there, a farmer's market cropped up, which is, which is amazing.
1: Absolutely. And I'm thinking... About the pandemic and how my relationship with food has been really salient, I guess, during this time, during this crisis. Um, I'm having to think a lot about where I'm getting my food, how to have access to food. And I have to admit that I've made some really convenient choices. And I just want to appreciate Jamiah's, um perspective on this, where our relationship with food could be a little bit more... Enlightened and collective, like thinking about how where food comes from to begin with, and how our contribution to farming um, can actually improve other people's access to food, which isn't something that I, I think a lot of us think about.
0: Yeah, and sh- sharing it, you know, it's called Crop Swap LA, is what, what he's founded, and the idea, you know, he talks about food being power, and the idea that you can share that and and make better use of it rather than, you know, kind of accrue lots of it and even waste it yourself, I think is, is a brilliant thing. He's been recognized in what he does on many different levels. There's an environmental element to it. There's a social element to it. There's a racial element to it that he's bringing lots of empowerment through uh, his projects. And he was recognized by Time magazine as one of the 27 people bridging divides across America uh, he's also received a grant from the Goldhirsch Foundation in 2020 to help scale up his initiatives as part of the LA 2050 program. So he's now being recognized as this and what started in his front garden as uh, being able to grow his own vegetables and it has, has moved into something that's much, much bigger and having an r- impact all across LA.
1: I'm excited to speak with him.
0: Let's welcome Jemiah in. Jemiah, welcome to the podcast. We're delighted to be talking to you today. Thanks a lot. It's a got-
2: Big pleasure to be here with everybody.
0: And just to paint a picture, where, where are you talking to us from? We can hear some amazing sounds in the background.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I'm in my backyard here in Los Angeles. I have planted every space possible, including the backyard that was grass, the side yard that's basically a driveway and had a green medium in it. Um, we've planted that medium. And the front yard, uh, which we share this with a, another person, but they've allowed us to just grow anything we want anywhere. Um, we see hummingbirds, butterflies around me now. I see my my spirit animal, the hawk, many times uh, a week. Wow. Um, and you know, we've we've just created a little space where we can can grow freely. Um, so you know, Los Angeles isn't typically a place where you you grow a lot of food but there are actually quite a bit of gardeners around that have done it um, in the spaces that they have so that's what i've gotten inspired to figure out ways to do it in different ways uh, on walls on trays um, and variety of other methods
0: and before we started recording we could hear the combination of some bird song in the background and then some sirens and (laughs) and 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 that seems to be the backdrop to an, an urban la garden
2: Definitely, yeah. Plenty of sirens. Uh, you know, you'll hear some car alarms, some landscapers. You might hear a scream. I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, it's it's definitely a loud space, and um, and and that's okay because the plants don't mind it.
0: <laughs> the, the plants are used to it. They go, yeah, excellent. Well, um, Jamaya, to open the conversation, we normally ask people's point of view on optimism? Do they see themselves as optimists? Do you see what you're doing with CropSop LA as as optimistic? What's your view? Do you ever think about that word even? What's your view on it?
2: Yeah, you know, I don't use the term very much because I um, believe that it depends on the context of when you're doing what you're doing as to whether or not what you're doing is helpful. Uh, the context of me doing this work now is very helpful to society. There are clear signs that our food situation is bad and getting worse and that there's a need for people to care about growing food for others. So if this were 10 years ago, before this level of awareness became as prominent, I'd say maybe me growing my food isn't that big of a deal. Uh, But now I say it's really kind of a big deal. Uh, It's become a revolutionary movement to uh, show what's possible and to push back against the establishment. Optimistic about progress, optimistic about purpose, and the use of purpose in the context uh, uh, allows me to to be optimistic. Um, I think out of context, it's... And out of use, um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it optimistic. I'd say it's, it's recreational. Um, mm. But in the current context, in the demands of, of nutrient-rich food, uh, or in the demands of water recycling and smart water usage, um, or in the demands of creating green jobs that are hyper-local, I would say each of these things independently in this context would make me feel optimistic. And combined
0: even more so. So you're talking about the acts, really. You're talking about actions rather than a point of view. You're talking about kind of real practical things that have a positive impact rather than just kind of thinking about something.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I spent a lot of my time in education, like undergrad and grad schools, um, where we study and Theorize a lot. Uh, we even study others' theories, and you know, it just ends up being this this self-perpetuating cycle of non-action. Um, but at this point, I think you know, I, to the listeners, I would encourage you: if you feel there's something that needs to be done, go do it. Start and make it happen. Um, you'll find others who are encouraged by your action, and they'll give you resources, and effort, and time to magnify your impact. Uh, but the inaction, uh, you know, we've been inactive enough. Um, I, think, I think about times of, um, I think about slavery and I think about the, the, the entire state of the world uh, during that, not just in the US, but all the external factors too. Um, and there are many people who lived during those times who I'm sure wanted to see things differently. Uh, they wanted to see things turn out differently and, and to see those problems end quicker. Uh, but it wasn't until, you know, a few handful of people that took literal action and were fearless, bold and ready to fight um, that things actually changed. So in all these contexts, be sure to, you know, make the action yours, uh, focus on, you know, pragmatic impact and uh, understand that there are others like you who are also looking for that encouragement.
1: I wonder what you can share about your your history, you know, your upbringing, your childhood—it's really powerful to hear you talk about purpose. And often, our first encounters with purpose happen really young. It, are there any memories or events or people in in your upbringing that you can think of that really helped you instill this sense of purpose and action?
2: Mm, thank you. Wow, it's a. Uh... You know, I was raised as an Air Force brat, they say, <laughs> uh, lived in England, Germany, um, New Mexico and Colorado, and you know, I stayed close to my father as much as I could while he was alive. He, he passed when I was 13 uh, from cancer, but during his career there in the Air Force, he was known for being a really strong leader uh, and learned that he led over 131 people at some point. Like he was responsible for underground living environments and got known by everyone in the whole system. He met Clinton and got an award. He just really was really successful. Um, So, you know, his purpose for us, I noticed throughout my life was to be a good example of a leader, um, to show that. You know, leading is a unique posture, Um, people will watch you and there's an opportunity to step forward. Um, There's an opportunity to guide and direct uh, and allow energies to exist, but also to redirect them when times needed. Um, So, you know, his purpose for us was really creating strong leaders. And I think, you know, even just through 13 years of instruction, I, I, I took a lot of his lessons and I'm, I'm trying to, you know, exemplify them. Um, and, you know, his own, his own context, they were raised in Fresno, California. And for those that don't know, Fresno is basically like the South in, in California. It's like, like Southern mentality um, for both Black folks there and for white folks there. Um, the, uh, the police department heavily recruits from the South so that they can maintain that mentality. Uh, they, they recruit from places like, um, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, so forth. And a lot of the discrimination that happens in Fresno is almost copycatted from tactics used in the U S South. So he went through a lot, uh, just being a black man and, you know, getting, getting harassed periodically, but himself. He happened to be confident, smart and funny and, and kind of a handsome person. So he got a lot of positive attention too. Um, I, I think, you know, the the goal is to to help others to care for those nearby and to use whatever you're given, even the challenges um, for for good and to show that. Those challenges are actually training opportunities. Uh, they're lessons we can choose to accept, or we can choose to ignore them and try to go through that again. So, you know, I just really honor my father and 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 his leadership, and in, in my movement in Crop Swap LA. Uh, I've got a daughter; she's four years old now, and I very much think about you know what she'll be told about one day when I've passed along to my my spiritual existence only and. I think about her, um, her lessons she's learning from me daily, both in how I interact with, you know, strangers and gardeners and new people, but also the values I carry in my business and how I care for my employees. I make sure to pay them more than minimum wage. Um, I care very much for my, my suppliers and I, I keep relationships solid. Um, so I, I expect her to follow her her father's footsteps in those ways and to follow her grandfather's leadership example in these ways. Uh, So really I'm just a conduit to train daughter on what her ancestors have given me.
1: It sounds as though it's not only important to have those internal talents and and as you talk about your father, I hear you say that he had an incredible amount of uh, attributes that helped him uh, through his experiences. But there's also this concept of igniting other people's energy and, and being a positive leader. And, and that requires a whole other level of um, social engineering and, and just being really smart and bright when it comes to relationships. And that combination is truly very special. I'm sorry that he was um, not with you as, as long as maybe um, he could have been uh, sounds as though we lost him too soon. But what an inspiration.
2: Thank you. Yes, indeed. I appreciate that. I mean, um, I, I like to say that his his funeral was huge. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I, if I'm lucky, I can have a big one, too, one day. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. And, and they say, you know, you can embody the light and you can be the light um, in in the darkness, in times of darkness, the light shines brightest. Uh, and those who are ready to follow it, follow it. Not everyone does. Some, some are scared of it or unsure, and you know, they, they may have to wait till the light's a little further away before beginning to pursue it. But um, if you can be that light, others see it in you. Uh, and you know, I, I believe that right now you know, our, our society is in some interesting state of, of being, of transition. People say it's transitioning somehow, but um, I just think people are more aware of where we are. Of how dark it is, and that it could get darker unless there's tangible movement in one direction. So, you know, in as much as I'm leading the crop swap movement, and those those who are with me are helping this thing work. I, I encourage others to, to be the light in your own movement, like your own personal movement. Uh, someone's watching you, you might have a niece or nephew, or you know, at the very least, you know, someone sees you in passing and they, they're going to notice something about you. Um, if you can influence and, and redirect energies in some way, then it really could mean the world to that person and the world.
0: It's inspiring to see you being the light in your own movement on a daily basis with um, Asante Microfarms and CropSorp LA. I'm really interested in how you got there because you're a graduate of the African-American Board of Leadership Institute. You went to the universities of Chicago and Columbia. You worked as a stocks and equity options trader. You're a headhunter and you worked for various nonprofits beforehand. So that's quite an interesting path to, to get to. And, you know, I, th- I think particularly, you know, a, a stocks, trader is not often seen as a as an arbiter of equity. <laughs> There's not someone who's who's looking at um, making sure ba- society is balanced or redressing an imbalance. Um, what what was it that inspired you to with your with your background and with your education and your professional background to set up Asante Microfarms in Cropstop LA?
2: Yeah wow well you nailed it because in fact while I was a trader I did notice the imbalance in society. Um, a lot of folks when you think about trading I'll, I'll just sh- share something on the, the insider level. There's always something, there's always a cheat. That's the only way you can make profit. <laughs> Either right. you, you know, and they, they call it competitive advantage and it can be summed up in all these ways. Maybe you think you're better trained. Maybe you uh, have better equipment. But sometimes it's literally how close your office is to the trading exchange, like the proximity. <laughs> if you're five doors down and I'm two doors closer, literally my trade gets there faster than your trade does. And I have a competitive advantage. It's that basic. Um, and so anytime I make profit off a of stock, it means necessarily that someone else lost. It a it is zero sum. Um, and so I thought about that as I was a trader and just didn't really like that that was how it was um i didn't see real value being created it's just literally being shifted from one to another um you know as you drive down like a a busy highway uh when you switch lanes it's just like getting out of one stock and into another one you're still going forward and there's still that lane back there like someone else picked up your space it's just a zero-sum exchange um no real value being made and you know additionally you know during that phase I would go to like a community garden nearby. This was in Chicago. And there were regular people there, like teachers, kids, some some uh, recent immigrants from Central America and Mexico. Uh, And I would just feel way more value in offering my time to that community and them offering their their time to me and space. uh, than I would feel for five days in my my white and gray office, you know, (laughs) Um, I would sit there looking out the window thinking about Saturday and getting out to the garden again. Um, so it's taken, you know, 10 or 12 years to get to this point where I have found ways to get by with jobs. You know, I'm grateful for the, the experiences as a headhunter and, and those organizations that gave me a chance to, to work with them. Um, however, when you really meet your purpose and you see that you can create more value than than there was before there's really no other way to go there's no like dollar amount you can put on it Uh, you're willing to do it for free for as long as you want and then when you get good at it or in my case um, also build a reputation for it money starts coming your way to do it Um, and then when society worsens and they need you (laughs) then uh you know the opportunity has, has really come forward. I, I'm grateful for those those chances, but also, you know, Nelson, Nelson Mandela said that the moment you find your purpose, your days are numbered because you really need to fulfill it and you realize how long you spent not fulfilling it and that what if I don't fulfill it? <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, I, I feel that way. There's a sense of urgency. Um, there is a sense of I'd better not fail. Um, there's a sense of I'd better put put things in place for when, when my mission ends. And um, just a new level of personal value. Like now my life has real meaning. So certain self-destructive trends, I've stopped, right? Mm. Like we all have some. And in America, in the U.S., we, we built in on every street corner, some way to self-destruct. And so a lot of that has stopped since I've I found my purpose. Uh, I, I work out intentionally, I, I eat better, I care about my relationships more, I, I slow down with my daughter and my wife. I, um, I think deeply about what my actions today mean in 10 years. And that has brought me toward greater self-care and care for others around me. Um, I couldn't imagine, you know, leaving this mission too early now, um, building in structures so that it'll it'll continue without me one day. Um, and it's just become more important to live more connected to life. Now that I see, I can contribute to it around me, um, as opposed to, you know, take what I can. When I was, when I was a trader, I working in an office, mm-hmm. I would just like live off and take what I could to, to get by and to try to be satisfied with that. Um, and, you know, live very small in my, in my exposure, my expansion. Uh, but now, you know, the universe is opening up, uh, not just for me, but for everyone involved in this movement. Uh, many of our trainees are just out of college and encouraged to not have to look in the traditional job fields um, many of our homeowners that are working with us they uh, are pensioners or otherwise on kind of uh, steady income fixed income lifestyles and now see an earning opportunity that not only brings in new money but also makes them a little bit of a hero in their neighborhood when they're growing food for their neighbors uh it's a permanent fixture and structure you immediately have positive energies coming your way that weren't there so i'm just encouraged by by being part of a purpose and I'm, i'm grateful i'm encouraging anyone else who who feels they're close to their purpose to to jump right in uh there's nothing holding you back and uh you'll get a lot of support once you get moving
0: I'd love to take a step back and get a slightly broader perspective on um, the underrepresentation of Black farmers in the agricultural industry. There's been phases in American history where um, the Black and Brown community actually been very close to agriculture and and the land for for, for various different reasons. And at the abolition of Slavery, everyone, every slave was actually promised 40 acres and a mule, I think, was the, was the deal. Mm-hmm. And um, clearly it was not fulfilled for most people. And actually through industrialization and through um, people living more and more in urban landscapes, the connection with the land has been lost. Yeah. Is there enough being done to allow access to understanding the land and to agriculture and to being an active member in the in the agricultural community to black and brown communities?
2: Right, great, great question. I, I, I think um, the short answer is no, there's not enough being done. Um, because there's not the right financial infrastructure to really enable that movement. And where does that look like that looks like land actually being affordable for those of us who wants to do the thing. Um, because the banking system dictates land affordability based on other factors such as debt to income ratio. Now, what does that what does that mean? In my experience, uh, I paid a lot for well undergrad i'm grateful to have gotten some support from like foundations but graduate school which seems to be the smart thing is all loans and the loan rates are prohibitive such that my wife and i can't really even afford to buy this rental home uh the banks dictate the debt to income ratio being too high and um therefore they wouldn't give us enough to buy this place that is a permanent problem for a lot of black folks and brown folks who are at least even enabled to have taken the debt in the first place um either through their their statuses or like opportunities coming their way and they could just get the education but now they're kind of stuck in that space uh so that's that's become a permanent problem for food production because you know that applies to farmland it applies to to areas that are that are Uh, prepare to grow food Um, there's a few different categories of people you know and their relationship to the land that I want to identify Uh, let's start with uh, the black folks and then we'll talk to the brown folks Um, there are three generations back that each have a different relationship with the land in the black community Uh, there are people who are like my great-grandparents who might have just been out of slavery and The moment that that they were like released there were laws placed that made them scared or literally threatened to leave the land of their slave owner um and so instead of leaving the land they would choose to stay and still operate basically like they were slaves but on paper they were free um you know this was 1848 when the police forces were first used to, to uh, identify folks who were like runaways or whatever. And um, there, there were just all these things. I, I don't want to worry people, but there were reasons to keep people enslaved. And then there's a generation after that, like my grandfather in Arkansas, uh, my dad's dad, he had his own land and people working on the land as sharecroppers and um, but what happened around there were literal intimidation, uh, physical violence, um, zoning practices, political intimidation, and all of these constant influences that would eventually propel him off the land. Um, so you know, numerous examples across the country where even rural Black communities were were decimated by that, um, and you know, families had to leave and migrate out west in the Great Migration. Uh, and then there's people on my father's side who, at that generation, that's the third one, where they've observed what their parents went through, and kind of didn't want a part of it. So the safest route was join the military, and all of all of my uncles, I think all of them joined a branch of the military, uh, because it allowed for free movement, uh, salary pay, training, you know, some kind of institutional protection. Um, And that institutional protection was something they didn't see their father have as he was out there trying to make it happen. Um, And then truly the fourth generation mine has zero connection to the land, not even a negative association. It's almost like a straight omission um, or a straight ignorance of what land opportunity is because we're so far from being able to buy it. It's not even on the table. Um, So, you know there's there's less of a an aversion to it it's more like we don't even have that as a as an option um so what ends up happening is uh, agricultural conglomerates gobble up little pieces of land now and do essentially what the government makes affordable for them to grow in subsidy form so the government says you know we want you to grow we're going to put out a a price of corn, and we guarantee a certain price for farmers to to sell it. Uh, and what that does is, it causes competition among the farmers to grow corn more efficiently, most efficiently, uh, using tactics that are either harmful to to environment or super expensive and can only be done by a few large farmers so the small ones give up they get gobbled up uh and then eventually the land use it loses its nutrient values and we end up getting the corn in a far lower deprecated state than it would have been grown if everything had been equally distributed and there weren't that kind of fabricated competition sitting sitting around um so you know, it's really been a, a backwards reversal uh, movement of of what we need as human beings, um, and then you know, it's even different for our brown brothers and sisters, whose um, own relationship with the land you know comes comes first from it being stolen and violently taken, um, but then you know, their ancestors being forced to work on it for for very low wages, even even today. You know, some uh, some younger kids see their ki- their parents get up early, go you know, come home late, tired, and and they don't want to do that at all. Um, They don't want to get involved in that at all. They know their parents are being abused. Uh, And so... You know, a lot of us are being pushed away from that work for these reasons. You know, the lack of ownership is is firstly, you know, if it's equally distributed. Um, you know, I'm I'm a big proponent of uh, this policy out of South Africa that is land redistribution without compensation. And land redistribution without compensation says that, however, they acquired the land, it needs to have been a legal way. And if it were illegal, being stolen or manipulated or some kind of trickery done, then it's not actually just, and that injustice is is what's leading to all of this awkward awkward existence now. Uh, if we redistribute the land without compensation, which is truly the fair way, it wasn't bought, it shouldn't be sold. Um, then we'll find a more equitable uh, solution together. It's
0: huge societal shift that you're you're talking about, and I think it's it's really interesting in. You know, looking at, at at the the land and and people's access to the land, but also you're talking about the food system. So you're talking about you know on one level the unjust land ownership, but on the other side, just access to good nutritional food. And and I I thought it's it's really interesting when people come to your urban farms, they you pick the the vegetables right in front of them, and they get to have them just kind of straight out of the ground. And there's a nutritional benefit to that.
2: That's right. And by being a small farm, you know, it's a micro farm on a front yard. It does necessitate um, just small actions like like you described. Um, Our 50 members, they go on their walks and on their walk, they pick up their bag from us. Uh, They see some of us, you know, harvesting by hand, washing on site, uh, shaking it dry and putting it in a paper bag, um, setting it on the curb for them to pick up. So it's very simple, straightforward. Uh, Now, in plant biology, the benefit is that most plants, when they're picked, they begin immediately depreciating their nutrient values. Uh, So, uh, in fact, it can go quickly such that in just 24 hours, you can lose 70 percent of the nutrient value that a plant had had. Uh, So, you know, we think about the food in the grocery stores in our current process. Who knows where the hell it came from or how long it, it took? and. Uh, even the soil it was grown in. there's just a lot of mystery that we accept a lot of a lot of unknowingness that that we've become complacent with um, that now by the time it arrives at our dinner plate well we've gotten used to cooking it which which isn't also you know an ancient custom you know raw foods are very clearly healthier for us Um, but you know by the time it's gotten there and gotten cooked you know it's just going to make space in our bellies essentially um you know our bodies have become diseases and illnesses are like a regular thing um you know we need to honor ourselves uh better than we do we need to promote knowing more about what we're putting in our bodies because we work we we value ourselves and we value our neighbors um I love how whenever we're out there working, there's like kids come by, you know, a couple of them are like 10 years old. They love learning about the different plants. Uh, The parents say, you know, we're inspiring them and, you know, it's a market garden. So it's not really like a training space, but inevitably people are going to be inspired by seeing something done that's intentional, intentional that's healthy, that's local, their mystery is gone about about their food. Um, in fact, their knowledge is now something that they, they expect. Um, I think it's really challenging the conventional food uh, distribution system. Um, it's really challenging what quality and v- what value is, what money should be spent on. Um, it's challenging how land use in our city is arranged, um and we're just going to take advantage of that of that challenge and say yeah the way it's been is wrong um you know I, I i know in in war times like having a big ration depot aka grocery store makes some sense but we're not we're not constantly we're we're not going to let ourselves be in constant war and you know, I've always said, I wish I could have just 10% of the Pentagon's budget, <laughs> 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 just 10%, or like, give me give me 25% of the, the LAPD budget, um, and I'll make the LAPD unnecessary, because uh, we can create a paradise.
1: I am just wanting to take pause and appreciate your brief history of um, community in in Los Angeles, but you know, in this nation, in particular, we see these inequities. I think in a more visible way during a crisis and the pandemic has just made these, this lack of balance and, and this, you know, a uh, huge power hierarchy really, really apparent. Uh, speaking to the food industry, to essential workers, to restaurant workers, to migrant workers, those of us who were getting sick, um, didn't have the option to quarantine in our houses. You know, we, uh, many of us, were working um, literally in the field, right? And to see how uh, our our own histories really uh, are important to know about in order for us to realize how that leads to access to healthcare, access to nutrition, access to, you know, all the things that I think a lot of us may take for granted. Um, so I just want to appreciate you took time to kind of uh, unpack that for us when we're talking about land and food. I do want to further talk about food with you, um, especially because this is such an interesting relationship, the one we have with food. During the pandemic, I thought about food all the time. I think many of us were constantly thinking about food. Um, For some people, how do we have access to food? But for others, almost a complacency, Uh, just push a button and someone will deliver food to you. You know, if you can't leave your home or if you're really limited... A lot of us were just getting food near our homes and that looks very different for for different people and different communities. Can you talk a little bit more about um, food access and social justice and maybe what you've discovered in your work with your micro farms?
2: Yeah, thank you. And, and you're so right. Um, you know, access even is always a concern for us. Um, we grow food there for members nearby, so we have a two-mile radius rule on any of the members. Um, and next time, I think for our next micro farm, I want to tighten that up even more and start with people on the block and say, if you can see the food, you've got the the first rights to buy it. Um, but you know, even that access necessitates internet access, and you know, I love to to figure out a way to enable EBT users. Um, to, to also use their EBT benefits to buy the food. Uh, our team is co- constantly looking into policy modifications to recommend to leaders who are watching us and say, you know, if you're in political office and you have the, the opportunity to make what we're growing accessible to those who somewhat needed more, um, then then step up and help us make that possible. Um, you know, access is, is a right. I, I have a few human rights I've identified in my life that you know, includes food. And I think food should be free because I see how crazily it grows in my own backyard. You know, it's not a matter of scarcity. It's a matter of unwillingness to provide uh, on the part of our leaders and our, our, our infrastructure. So, you know, if, <laughs> you know, I'm not running for office right now, but if I were, if I were mayor of LA, um, then I would, I'd create a, a tax incentive or some kind of, um, Subsidy that would significantly incentivize people growing food and just giving it to their neighbors Uh, Seeds soil sun water when used smartly can all be pretty cheap And when you enable folks with a financial incentive to use their excess assets like land and time uh, You could create you could create paradise Um, so yeah, we're, we're opening our next micro farm pretty soon. Uh, we're going to start construction maybe in a month or so. Uh... So you know, at the peak of our expression, we hope to be opening uh, micro farms maybe at the rate of two every month, uh, not wow. just in South LA to where you know the folks need it most, but also in West LA because the folks in West LA still have access to the same nutrient deficient food, whether they're paying more for it or not. <laughs> um, that food's still grown in fields that's been over tilled and sprayed with pesticides, even if they're organic now, it was pesticides before. and. Um, we recognize that everyone's in the same boat here. So um, also my staff is just really hyper-local. Uh, some of them live down the block. Um, we pay you know, $20 an hour at least for folks who want to do the urban farming. Uh, I think it's valuable and you know, that cost passes through to the members who also see the food and they know it's valuable. So uh, it's really created a system of, of shared local economy um, that people are proud to support, proud to be a part of, um, and really the food variety has been amazing. You know, we've had tatsoi, bok choy growing, green onions, strawberries, tomatoes, butterhead, oak lettuces. You know, all kinds of dope things uh, that you can't find that variety in the store. Number one, and then you, you kind of challenge the, the mystery behind its arrival. Um, but uh, yeah, we we can we create a whole new system.
0: you've talked a lot about the nutritional benefit and the social benefit of having uh, community farms that people can can, can access and be, and be part of. But there's also a pretty significant environmental benefit too. And I think I, I'm really interested to hear about, you've mentioned water recycling, minimising waste, um, and only really kind of harvesting when, when you need things. I know that you've kind of, you're a self-styled, gardening engineer. And and I think you have a, a clear understanding of uh, soil, carbon sequestering, and you look at that garden by garden as, you, as you're kind of adding sites on. When you look at farming in the environment, what role do you see your initiative playing or the various initiatives playing in, in, in making a kind of positive environmental impact?
2: Yeah, so the biggest for us is water usage. Uh, we found a way to capture and recycle Rainwater and city water hundreds and hundreds of times again to grow that food Uh, So it's basically we carve the earth to where it has a decline and a big reservoir at the bottom Uh, That reservoir has a pump that pumps it back up to the top and it drains back down every time Um, Yeah, yeah, we uh, use garden socks, which are these nylon Sacks of soil that when irrigated from the top it drains through them all the way so uh all of that's on a pond liner and that pond liner is directing it back down to the reservoir so we have two sides to that Asante Microfarm that do that. Uh, together, it's about 660 gallons of water that's stored on site. Um, like I said, anytime it rains, it's going to fall on that and recharge the water in the reservoir. Uh, but in L.A.'s case, if in, when it doesn't rain, it's still hooked up to the city water, so it can it has a reverse float that basically triggers when it gets low and re- refills itself and irrigates
0: using that water. Yeah,
2: wow. super dope. <laughs> um, they, they-
0: Water is such an issue in L.A. in particular and in California. And there's big tensions in California because L.A. takes a lot of water from northern California. um, And there's huge amounts of, um, uh, you know, uh, poverty created from that all up and down the state because, uh, you know, it's filtered down here. So I, I imagine that that could be is that a scalable process that you've created?
2: Yeah, I believe it is. Um, and you're right, I mean, most of LA gets its water from the Colorado River Basin. Uh, and in fact, when you drive through the desert, you can see the giant water pipe. There's like one or two of them. And you know, in the situation that we have our big earthquake happen, that pipe could pretty easily crack. Um, and if that cracks, we have even more of a social challenge here in la you know there's going to be there's going to be uh just straight up madness if people lose water um but in the case of that family where we've done the asante micro farm they at least have 660 gallons on site that they could use tools to suck and siphon that water and care for themselves in that in that challenge Um, so you know our water usage is really is really smart uh, and we've got other designs we're making for our next micro farm uh, related to raised beds and still recycling the water just to pump on itself and capture that water again um, we uh, one day soon are going to open a training center and ideally bring on more people to help do this but also if someone wants to learn it uh, they can they can learn it and do it themselves um los angeles is is going through the largest drought it's over, ever had Um, And I expect it to just become a state of existence. I'm sitting next to my own water tank. It's above ground. It's 530 gallons that comes off the shed in the house. But, you know, it only gets filled like twice a year and that's it. So we have to number one, be prepared. To have multiple of these at a a house, for instance, like that should be subsidized as an initiative where every house will capture that rain when it comes. Uh, But also that gardening and farming initiatives like ours be enabled to capture and recycle its water. Uh, Because in as much as I love all the the gardening initiatives in the the state and the city, we're the only one that's intentionally recycling our water. Um, and by the way, that recycled water turns out brown cause it's gone through the soil. So when it's pumped back onto the leaves, it creates a foliar feeding effect. So the plants grow faster than normal. Um, wow. yeah, there are a ton of benefits. Uh, and the water stays fresh. We did some tests and everything like that. We keep it covered and, and dark, uh, There's no mosquitoes or anything happening in there. Um, and we're also doing some pH testing, but basically, you know, there are a ton of benefits to that um our ancestors have shown other examples of it i think we're the first ones to do it on a front yard in, in like a csa membership style and that's going to be our our goal um, you know you mentioned carbon sequestering and actually you know our model uh doesn't do that um our our model focuses more on efficient growing so the plants go in they're harvested a new plant comes in and when that soil depletes we replace it um, because it's on a pond liner in sacks but basically other benefits are happening due to that environment. There's a car, there's a cooling effect by having more plants and irrigation there. Uh, There are pollinator effects. Um, There is, yeah, it's a beautification green space, but you know, most of the environmental benefit comes from the water reusage.
1: I'm wondering what advice you'd have for someone like me. Uh, I have very little space, Mm -hmm. but I'm really inspired by hearing you talk about uh, potentially having a little micro farm or, or some way that I can grow my own food. Are there maybe like two or three things that someone like me could do just to get started and, and not get stuck in like the intimidation of this?
2: A hundred percent. Oh, yeah. So uh, if you have even as small as a windowsill or you're fortunate to have a balcony or if you're fortunate to have a wall that is unused and in sunlight nearby water, then you could use our soil socks and grow food on that space. just by hand watering on a tray, for instance, uh, we're getting to the point now where we can have those for available for pickup. Um, but uh, we do these cool wall gardens; they're called vardens, uh, where we basically just screw into a wall and hook it up to water, and you can grow as many as 36 plants there, automated, irrigated. Uh, yeah, everything from herbs, tomatoes, big things. You know, you can grow cannabis too, and uh, other things you like to have there. And you know, it, it does it does a good job. Um, and soon we'll also be rolling out things for apartment buildings. Um, so if you have a flat rooftop and your landlord is open to the idea of us hiring someone in your in your building to run this, then uh, we'll offer the equipment and uh, and a, a payment situation where folks who who buy the food that grow um, can can support it. But yeah, you know, there's there's always an answer. Um, we can always assert our rights to grow food um in history food has been used as like the main consistent weapon for oppression uh both in you know camps that were concentration camps and internment camps or whatever camps um that food was always used as a way of differentiating those who behaved and those who didn't um and you know in the black american slavery experience food was always used as identifying uh, those who were preferred and, and creating an internal class system. So we just have to take all of that back before it's used in, its, in a new way. You know, we have to totally decentralize food growing and redistribute that power. Uh, right now it's, it's, it's highlighted in one space and those, you know, in small living spaces are required to go outside to find that power. Um, and I, I, I just don't think that that's right um so yeah by all means we're looking we're looking forward to supporting uh home growers and you know also just knowing that you you have it in you too like as these uh little opportunities come even on the windowsill like uh the 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 failures come less often than the successes um and your your ancestors and our ancestors are proud to see us give it a try <laughs>
1: I love this part too about reframing our relationship with food and and with our space, right? That I think you said earlier, um, we really need to think about our reliance on institutional power and and that a lot of times that's how we think about that relationship. And and now I'm rethinking that, you know, in what ways can I sort of reclaim my ownership of my space and my food and what I have access to in ways that are accessible and realistic. So thank you for that.
0: Indeed, indeed. <laughs> I was really inspired by your take on optimism as an act, not a an idea or a philosophy. It's, it's, it's kind of what you're doing. And I'd love to hear, we've heard a bit about your dad, who's clearly a, a, a really inspiring figure in, in your life. But I'd love to hear um, if you have, any mentors or anyone who's inspiring you to to take such a an original path with with what you're doing
2: yes yes well i'll highlight mike garcia who uh, is a mentor of mine and helped us make that project asante micro farm Uh, he runs a pond and landscaping company called enviroscape la and he's always told me that you know when you do something that's never been done before it's going to be difficult Um, uh, he and i describe it together as you know the front point of an airplane You know, as you're cutting through the air, it's that front point that's that's getting all the the heat and sometimes the wings and everything else behind there gets all the credit. But really, you know, that's that's hitting up against things first. Um, So he's really guided me, you know, helped me help me think through, you know, how to build and lead a team that does this kind of work. So I want to I want to honor him Um, and, you know, just to honor those those who work out in the fields and those. Who fought for the rights of migrant workers? Um, I always think about that experience and how how wrong it is that uh, our food, in such a great volume, is is priced where it is and available because of them. Um, that's that's very unsustainable. It's contrary and spiritually backwards for the experience food ought to be, you know. The best experience for food is a spiritually uplifting one where, you know, from the very beginning, you had a hand in building it and growing the plants and preparing it and kind of, you know, getting it to the stage of ingestion that it it did and even sharing some with others in love. Um, you know, we started these crop swaps. These were kind of like gardener get togethers, uh, very informal right here in this backyard, uh, where, you know, just before the pandemic, we had as many as a hundred gardeners rotating in and out who would bring their goods here to my spot, uh, share it off on the table. The table wasn't big enough by the end. We just put it on the ground and, you know, it would show that, you know, there's so much abundance, number one, that somebody has the ability to share. Um, but also the people who came to do that were of so many varieties of background, it would completely flatten all of the sharp edges of society. Like there was all races showing up, all ages, sexual identities, uh, people who were corporate, people who didn't have a job, people who, who were artists, all kinds of nationalities, um, just every kind of person. Uh, and it began feeling like a Sunday garden church because uh, we could all come and kind of spiritually commune in, in the presence of abundance. It would uh, show how our society has tricked us into scarcity, uh, a mentality of scarcity um, scarcity of time and rushing around or scarcity of like emotional investment. Like I've only got to, I've only got to invest in my people or people like me. Um, all of that is eliminated when you come to a crop swap, um, people express love, built friendships and began projects together. It's, it's amazing to, to think back to that time, you know, Post-pandemic, soon we'll get back to having more crop swaps uh, because that's the true heart of this whole experience—that that there is uh, a potential for abundance, and if we can just tap into it, number one, and then now, if we can create more of it, uh, then all of, all of our edges of society could be rounded out.
1: You mentioned that when you realize your mission, or when you're really uh, solidifying. What it is that you want to dedicate your life to? There can also be this sense of urgency, and um, I imagine that with everything you're doing, you must be very busy, and yet taking care of your own self and being healthy uh, is also a priority, right? So my question is about your self care and well being practices. Earlier in the hour, you gave us kind of a cool roadmap. Um, generally speaking, you know, minimize self destructive behaviors, and you know, think about community needs. I wonder if there are like one or two things you do every day that are really intentional and that are specific to your mental health.
2: Yeah, uh, well, I frequently go on airplane mode and try to find spaces away from electromagnetic radiation. (laughs) Um, I've seen studies where uh, a plant is placed next to a Wi-Fi router and the plant dies much faster than other plants. Um, I do believe that proximity to all that em from bluetooth to cell phones laptops and the wi-fi is all that does have a damaging effect on our bodies um so I, I do myself my best to to get away from it when i can um i've also started going on runs every day after the harvest days uh so we harvest sundays and wednesdays so i go on a run on monday mornings and uh thursday mornings uh, and i go out to this area called kenneth Hahn park uh, in la it's a it's a beautiful little little space uh it's actually next to an oil field so i don't know about that but it's uh it's got a lot of like natural wildlife and when you you know i go by like 4 a.m so no one's out there and it just kind of helps me recalibrate with earth and its natural rhythms. Um, you know, remembering there, there are rabbits and owls out there like hawks and you can see the moon sometimes, you know, there's no humans. I don't leave, I don't bring my phone. I don't need to track it. You know, I just, I know I'm out there and I don't need music or anything with me. Um, so that's very important that I do that. Um, and, uh, spending time with my daughter too, you know, seeing how she plays and, how her thought process is just very basic. And, um, you know, she's almost always in a meditative state, if I think about it that way, like, when you're in a meditative state, you're able to focus on one thing, or not focus on anything. And that's a great reminder to me, as as my life gets very busy, you know, very, very complicated business, I'm, I'm leading and very exposed kind of Uh, existence now like i can't go out without someone recognizing me now which is kind of cool but also like a little overwhelming at times um i i remember how triana is just very very basic human so i kind of try to tap into that basic mentality myself and say like what is the real reason i need to do x y or z or do i really need to be trying to change or uh, rush or you know do everything at once and be you know multitasking and you know, a lot of times I don't need to do any of that. Um, so I, I'm grateful to have her as a kind of guiding light. Um, and of course, my wife, too. She's just so supportive and loving. I'm grateful to have her, you know, on this mission with us. Um, so, yeah, those are, those are my self-care areas.
1: <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I'm hearing there's a lot of humility building and just kind of getting um, back to basics, uh, something we forget to do. So I appreciate uh, you sharing this with us.
2: Thank
0: you. thank you for such a, an inspiring conversation. It's, it's incredible to hear how, you know on the face of it, you're looking at um, farming, urban farming, but actually through that lens, you're talking about spirituality, you're talking about equity, you're talking about empowerment, you're talking about nutrition, you're talking about water usage and it's, it really is a kind of radical act, which I think is really inspiring. Um, Before we go, I would love to hear if you've got any um, music tracks or anything that you've read or seen that you find inspiring that we can put on a playlist or we can share with other people so that they can uh, share some of the inspiration that you've seen totally
2: okay so i'm a Taoist, and i read the dao the dao de ching and uh there is an audio track i can share with you that just has the Tao de ching being read by someone uh the whole you know 80 82 verses or something like that um and you know it's very kind of like basic but highlights some really interesting leadership lessons it highlights um you know, the simplicity that we can lead, lead our lives with, the compassion we can lead our lives with, the patience we need to lead our lives with. And I listen to that track on the on the every other daily. <laughs> I listen to it when I can. Just If I'm farming or gardening, I put it on and I hear the, the, the voice reading the Tao Te Ching. Um, so it's really about, you know, finding, finding a little spiritual peace. Um, and I'd love
0: to offer that to the audience fantastic we'll, we'll make be sure to put that in the in the show notes but um jamaya thank you for joining us uh founder of CropSwap la um creator of the Asante micro farm and uh inspiring human to have on the podcast so thank you very much for your uh, all you're doing but also thanks for the conversation today
2: thank you thank you both so much it was a pleasure <laughs> such
1: a pleasure to meet you thanks so much for being on with us
2: too
0: Thanks for listening to Optimist in Progress presented by Dr. Dreoletta Mendy and me, Tom Johnston with research by Lisa Farr Johnston original music by Reg Science Perry edited by Brian Ward and produced by Arginia O'Dell Please email us at podcast at optimist drinks and follow at optimist drinks on social media. Thanks for listening